up guys and welcome back to the sport business discovery i hope you're all doing well i hope you had a great easter weekend and today's episode is with nick batista who's director of premium sale for the united center nick originally graduated from the university of montana with a bachelor of business administration and marketing he then started in the industry with the Cleveland Cavaliers along after that with the um, National Association of Collegiate Director of Athletics or NAGDA. He also had experience with the Cleveland Browns and the New Orleans Saints, the Pelicans like we talked about and for about a bit more than one year now he's director of premium sales for the United Center. So continue listening to know more about his career and know as well what are the different type of fan bases. So what it is like to work in the NFL versus the NBA, the NHL, also where we're going in the business in the next few years. All of that is in this episode. So without further ado, let's hear it for my conversation with Nick Batista. United Center these days and stuff. I think the the Bulls are just on the verge of the play-in and they should qualify. So I guess the the environment must be not so bad, right? Yes. So we are. Yeah, we're kind of going back and forth from really fighting between the really the seven seven seeds probably getting a little bit out of reach. So really, we're in that eight, nine, ten seed positioning right now, like you mentioned for the play-in. So we sit. As we speak today, we sit at the 10 seed. Um, we play, we have a big game tonight. We play the Lakers, so we got LeBron in the house tonight, so we're getting ready for that. So that'll be a big one for us. But, um, yeah, I think we have six or seven games remaining um, the rest of the year. So it's going to it's gonna be – we won't know where we sit really until the very last game of the year of, of you know, whether we'll be the 10, whether we'll be the 9, and how that will all work out. So – it's exciting, and and hopefully we're on the uh, we're heading into that last game on a playing well, and hopefully a little bit of a winning streak. Yeah, and if you no, know, I think you guys can get hot near the end, and if you finish eighth, I guess you have the home advantage. So if we if we finish, so it it, it it's kind of it's interesting. Plus it's like seven versus ten, and eight versus nine. So it actually goes the seven and eight seed will play each other. The seven ah. seed would get the home would get the home game. Whoever wins that game is the automatic seven seed going into the playoffs. Mm. The loser of that game plays the winner of the nine, nine and ten seed. 10. Okay. And then the winner of that game would get the eight seed in the playoffs. Okay. So in order for us to have a home play in game, we would have to be either the nine seed or the seven seed. But if you're eight and you lose after, don't you get the home game? Yeah, as the eight seed, you would get that second play in home okay. game. Okay. Yeah. But for the first, yeah, seven or nine. Okay. Yep. Nice. Yep. So unless you're you're ten, you're pretty sure of having at least one. Yeah. Being the way, or if you're nine, no, if you're nine, you'll have one even if you lose afterwards. Yeah. Okay. If you're good. if you're if you're a nine seed, you'll get the you'll get the playing game the first game, and then if you're a seven seed, you'll get the first playing game, and then it kind of just depends on who wins and who loses from there. Nice. And are you already, I guess you're already planning some stuff for next season since since a bit, right? Yeah, so we've been on sale for the 23-24 season. So next year, we've been on sale from a premium seating standpoint probably for a little over a month now. Um, so we're, we're actively selling for next season already for 
both the Bulls and the Blackhawks. And then we are really finalizing, which we pretty much have finalized, any sort of playoff ticketing, pricing, packages, things like that. That's already been set in stone. So now we just got to figure out where we fall come come playoffs, come playing game, and how all that all shakes out. Okay. And as we're speaking more about premium sell, I guess we can maybe dig right into it. Could you describe a bit more what it is and what you're you're mainly doing? Yeah, absolutely. So premium seating really as a whole is going to be a focus on a few different areas here at the United Center. That's going to be our suites, our, and then we have two different um, VIP all-inclusive clubs that we that fall under premium seating. So when we think of premium seating, it's it's really the uh, multi-year contract contractual inven- pieces of inventory that fall under that platform. So like I said, we have um, our suites. We have three different levels of suites that we focus and have inventory on. And then we have two VIP clubs that are all-inclusive that we sell um, for for the United Center. So premium seating is really those three different areas in the arena that we sell um, throughout the year. And does this tend to get a lot of turnover? Like, do you have a lot of different people buying it? Or like this time of the year, this particular company comes back? Or do you have more long-term deals? Yeah, it's a, it's, it's a good question. So we really, our focus is is the long-term multi-year deals. We have we have an we have really only one option on a one year deal, but everything else is on a multi year deal. And and you mentioned it, I would say ninety to ninety five percent of our book of business is going to be companies that are in the Chicago land area. So it's it's not as much your casual fan buying these types of of areas, but it's going to be more of your companies and corporations that are looking to, you know, whether it's get in front of clients, spend time with employees, do different things, incentives within their business. Um, they'll purchase these and utilize those from a from a, a B2B standpoint. Nice. And do you have actually agreements that gets beyond the premium sell, like a partner that you will do may either being with like you'll I don't know, if the company is too big or whatever, you'll have seats on top of the, the premium sell, or do you have sometimes maybe a a partnership where you have advertisement of this particular brand in the building also, or, or these will always be separate? Yeah. So the premium seating department is separate from, like you mentioned, the, the partnership or sponsorships um, piece. I will say this though, there's a lot of, there's a lot of hospitality or premium seating that are looped in on sponsorship deals. So it, it correlates pretty well. And, and a lot of times we're working with the, the sponsorship departments on inventory, on, on, you know, including a suite, including some of the premium seating within those sponsorships. Um, my specific team and myself, we're strictly focused on selling and moving the inventory from a premium seating in the hospitality side of things. So um, that is, that's our focus, but, but yes, there, you will see a lot of time. I, I would say the majority of our, of our partnership deals and sponsorships include some sort of premium spo- um, hospitality in some capacity. Okay, perfect. And what is maybe the range that you have usually of buyers during the year? Because I was wondering, what about if you don't have any contract renewal and you all have long-term agreements with those deals? Do you always have something on your plate that you're already uh, that you're always trying to? I know you always have something to to sell because you already have something that coming a term coming to the end. Yeah, we, I mean, we have from from an obviously that's 
you know, team to team, arena to arena, our inventory is going to be different. You know, sometimes, you know, it, it, it's if your team is performing really well, you know, and the, and the demand is high, you may not have as much inventory. Where if your teams are maybe in a situation where they're, you know, I, I don't I don't like using the word rebuilding, but maybe not doing as well on the court, on the ice, on the field as as one would like. You know, maybe you have a little bit more inventory to work with. So. To, to answer your question, you know, we, we've been, we've been lucky here at the United Center in Chicago. I think, you know, from the J- Michael Jordan, Scottie Pippen years, that was obviously a very exciting and, and fun time in Chicago. And, and that the building was packed and full. Um, then, then the Blackhawks went on a nice, you know, Stanley cup run over a six, seven, eight year period and, and had tremendous, you know, success. So Chicago, and especially when you look at the United Center, um, there's always been some iconic, there's been iconic games. There's been iconic events that have taken place here, which has been, which is exciting for us. And on top of that, whether it's Bulls or Blackhawks, we also have concerts. So, you know, whether that's Drake coming through and, and having a few shows or Harry Styles, um, we also have that on, on, on our plate too, which is also a fun and, and different dynamic outside of the, the two sports clubs. So there is, I see that there is always something to sell just because of the opportunity that we have with really three different entities being the Bulls, Blackhawks, and special events. So we are we are never looking for for things to do or things to sell, which again is is as a seller, that's that's what you hope for. Yeah, for sure. And with such an iconic building, what is maybe one of the best moments that you had, whether it being sports related or not? Well, I have been, I am kind of the new guy here. I've been, I just hit one year at the United Center. I was down in, I was down in New Orleans with the, with the Saints and Pelicans. And then before that, I was in the NFL with uh, the Cleveland Browns for about six years. But I would say, you know, I was actually talking about this a few weeks ago. I would say growing up, I, I grew up in Montana. So as, as most people know, we do not have professional sports there. But I remember watching the Bulls and the Jazz play in the playoffs growing up and it was John Stockton, Michael Jordan, Carl Malone, Scottie Pippen. And I always remember the starting lineups for the Chicago Bulls and really the the famous intro, the the music in the background. And so the the coming you know years later, 15, 20 years later, my first Bulls game here, I got a chance to to sit back and watch the the um, intros of the Bulls, and it brought me back to watching Jordan and Pippen on TV and watching that on TV and how cool it was to see that in person. Now, it wasn't announcing Michael Jordan and Scottie Pippen, but it was still the exact same intros, just with different people now. So it wasn't a moment on the court, but it was that moment of me seeing my first Bulls game live, and and, and really it wasn't anything that had happened yet in-game. It was the intros, and seeing that was was pretty special and cool to see live. And how was it when you decided to take on the job um, to work at the United Center and you were like, oh, I'm entering this organization. I'll have the chance to to work with them, see the culture, how it's like. How was it for you back then? You know, it was when I really had the opportunity to just even have the conversation to potentially come and, and work at the United Center. That was one of the things that, that I really looked hard at and, and excited me the most was the United Center is everyone knows Madison Square Gardens in New York City. You know, everyone knows um, the Rose Bowl in Southern California. There's been some historic games that have been played there. So I, 
I think that the, the United Center probably sits top five, top eight venues in the United States that people just know, hey, that's that's where Michael Jordan played. That's where Scottie Pippen and Michael Jordan, you know, won six championships. So it was a, it's an iconic venue, like you mentioned at the beginning. Um, and that was what excited me, having the ability and the opportunity to, to do that. And then also the, I mentioned it already too, but the three different entities, having getting it, getting to, to work in hockey for the first time, getting a chance to not only work in hockey, but also be still be on the NBA side and then have the special events and the concerts piece fall under that umbrella too. Um, all of those things were exciting to me. And I think that's what was most intriguing. And then, you know, first and foremost, I, I wouldn't have, of probably, I, I wouldn't have been here if it wasn't for the people that I was coming to work for and work with. That's, that's been the best thing that's happened with this move is those people that, you know, sit right out, right outside my office that I got to work with daily, my bosses, their bosses. Um, it's, it's been a, a joy to, to come to work every day because of the people that, that are here in the building. And how would you say it is to navigate through those different sports and also the event side? Because I think that the people don't take, like, let's say they, they want to pick one of the big leagues that they want to work in. I don't think they think of the possibility that they can actually work in both when you're working for an arena, when you're working for a stadium. So would you see it as a big advantage or sometimes also, I guess, it have a bit more downside or a bit more adaptation that you need to? So I was wondering how do you navigate through all of those things? Yeah, I mean, this has been the first time that I've worked for on the arena side directly and not not the team. So in, in New Orleans... Our ownership was was one owner owned both the Saints and the Pelicans, uh, Mrs. Benson. So we were working directly for the clubs in Cleveland. I was working directly for the Browns. And then here, it's the first time I've worked for the arena where it's not that it's a huge change because you're still doing, you're still working directly for the teams and obviously selling the hospitality for the Bulls, for the Blackhawks and the concert and special events. But I think that the, the, the piece that is different is like you mentioned, each league is a little bit different. You know, some leagues are a little bit more progressive. Um, some leagues care about this or that. The NFL, you know, is its own monster too, where the NFL has t has 10 home games as opposed to the NBA and NHL, which have 40 plus. So there's, there's different things. And that's what's been exciting, you know, coming here is I've never worked in hockey before. I've never I, I hate to admit this out loud, but I don't know a lot about hockey. So it's been fun to learn more about the game, learn more about the business side of the NHL um, and how it differs, how it how it is similar to the other leagues that I've worked in. So it's really been cool that, you know, I've gotten to see that on the NHL side. And then it's also been cool to see how the special event side of the business works from whether it's what goes into booking a show, what goes into working with the promoters, what goes in with the, the business side, how pricing is set, the strategy side of, you know, how we're going to go to market, um, on sale, you know, so that, that, that's been really cool, which I haven't had a ton of, um, as much focus on in some of the, the other stops that I've had along my career. Cool. And it may be a silly question, but I was wondering, is it the, the United Center, and the Blackhawks and the Bulls, is it like all together? Is there an equivalent to you in the Blackhawks organization and in the Bulls organization? Or it's you that really like fills both roles? 
Yeah, that, that, that's a great question. It's it's so it's just uh, the premium seating department is un, falls under the United Center, and so we handle all the Bulls and all the Blackhawks. So there's our team is the one that handles it for both teams. So there isn't a equivalent premium sales team for the Bulls and for the Blackhawks. It's it's our team that handles that um, holistically. Perfect. And you talked about before that you were new to hockey and that um, it was cool to discover a new sport. So I was wondering, where do you think your passion f comes from sport and what was maybe your favorite sport? Was it, um, I guess you worked a lot of football. Was it football? Yeah, you know, I, I think it's kind of changed a little bit over time. I, I grew up and I would probably say when I was younger, it was probably baseball. And as I, as I got into high school, I probably switched to football. I, I'm a fan of really, I would say I, I watch baseball, basketball, and football on a regular basis. I'm getting more into hockey, which has been fun. I, I can say with full transparency that watching playoff hockey is, it's tough to beat that. It is a fun, is it a fun action-packed um, time to watch hockey. And if you're a casual fan like myself, it's, it's easy to get hooked on that. But yeah, I mean, I, I have spent more time in the NFL than, than the other leagues. And that, that's been fun. Like it's, it's been, that's what I, you know, grew up on was, was really football and baseball. And so being able to kind of start my career in the NFL and, and stay there and, and get to work for two different teams, it was, it was very cool. And, and really, you know, what I dreamed about that dream when I was younger, I didn't know what that was going to be working in the NFL or working in pro sports, but that that's developed over the last, you know, 10, 12 years. So it's, it's been, it, it, it's been a cool ride again, now that I've gotten to see two or three different leagues and be a part of them. Nice. And maybe speaking more about the beginning of the ride, um, when you were at uh, the university of Montana, you were a lot involved, yes, in, um, baseball and in university as well. So I was wondering uh, how was your experience back then and how much do you think it laid foundation for you later on in your career to get involved at actually such a young age but at such the beginning of your career yeah when when i when i started or when i went to college at university of montana i mean i i had the opportunity to, to do an internship with the athletic department there and it was a marketing internship and a marketing internship in college athletics as a student you know sometimes is throwing t-shirts into the crowd or doing the dirty work or, um, you know, printing off 500 pages of, of whatever your boss may need. So, but the, the cool thing was about the internship there was I got a, I got a really good sense of the different aspects of the business side of college athletics. So, you know, seeing, seeing what the athletic director was, was doing on a day-to-day -day basis, what his focus was, what he was concerned about, what he was trying to, to achieve. And then, you know, being directly interning for the marketing department, like getting an understanding of how that, of how that is built through the different sports within college athletics and what was most important and how they were doing things. And, um, and then the development side of things like the fundraising college athletics is, is really driven through the donors and the money that they can, you know, bring to the department to whether it's for facilities, whether it's for opportunity scholarships, whatever it may be. So that was really cool to see, To, to do that, get a sense of what college athletics, working in college athletics was all about and whether that was wanting to be an athletic director someday or just wanting again to, to get into college sports as a whole. 
that gave me a really good sense of, of how athletic departments operate and function and, and the different opportunities that were in, um, you know, a, a college university's um, athletic department. And after this experience and after you graduated, did you start to lean on to a department in particular? Or did that start more when you had your first job in sales with uh, the Cleveland Cavaliers? You know, I when I graduated school um, or college, I took an internship in Cleveland at the National Association of Cleveland Directors of Athletics, better known as NACTA, which was headquartered in Cleveland. And, and I thought that my interest at the time was that someday to be an athletic director. So I, I got lucky enough to get that internship. And, and it was it was probably one of the first one of the few things that really got me going and giving me an understanding of what the business side, what the different opportunities are within sports as a whole. Obviously, that was that was geared towards college athletics, but um, it was it was another internship right after I'd graduated school. So I got a chance to go work at the, at the national office in Cleveland, meet people from all over the country at different colleges, different departments, different roles, different titles. Um, and, and again, like that, that was eye opening because again, I, I had thought that, Hey, I, I want to go down the athletic director role. I want to go into college athletics. Um, and then as I was doing that, I had an opportunity to get some very, small access to the calves and sales. It was, it was night sales. So it was three days a week, two and a half, three hours a night of getting on the phone and, and cold calling. And that was my first sales experience, um, ever. So it, it was, it was good because I can say looking back now during the, that first early stint with my cold calling of the calves, I did not think that was going to be what I would go into. Um, I look back down years later and something worked out, I guess, I guess, right. And it clicked eventually, but um, that was, that was my first taste of, of pro sports. And then I just got more involved in being the, the curiosity of how professional sports teams in the business operate in the different segments of the businesses. And that's really where my kind of career stuck in the professional side was, um, you know, getting lucky enough to get a, an inside sales entry level position with the Browns and then just having incredible people that that were my bosses and, and mentored me and still are my mentors today. Um, show me the, the, the right way to do things. Um, but I do take a lot back to, to what I learned at NACTA and the things that that I found out about myself that I was good at that I needed to work on. Um, and I'm, I'm sure if you talk to anyone at NACTA, they probably say I had a lot to work on during that time, but that that's okay. So um, hopefully I've gotten better at at least one of those things. Yeah, I don't doubt so. And speaking about the job that you got with the Browns afterwards, I was wondering how did you got that job? Was it through networking? Did you apply on a job site? And regarding that, do you have maybe any tips when individual are starting in their career or kind of getting that first step, whether it being reg regarding the, the CV, the interview, um, cover letter. How do you do to get those jobs for the ones that may be wondering? Yeah, I mean that—that's obviously when you're coming out of college or you're coming out of school and you're looking at how do you break into the sports industry. I think that's the most daunting, maybe the scariest piece is how do I even get my foot in the door. I can tell you right now that my how I got my job with the Cavs and how I got my job with the Browns were very similar. Um, it was not that I was necessarily better than the other people or had more 
credentials or more experience, but it was definitely about the, the network that I had built. So the, the cab story is, is, is a pretty unique and cool one in, in college. When I was at university of Montana, I worked at a ranch. Um, it was, it was a resort where people come out, stay for, 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 you know, just like a hotel, but it was a high end ranch in Montana where they could come out and camp and, and, um, uh, stay for a few days. So I was a bellman. I drove people around on property. I had, I was randomly one day at the airport and one of the guests that I was picking up ended up being Dan Gilbert, who is the owner of the Cleveland Cavaliers. Um, I fast forward about a year and a half later. And, and when I was taking care of him and his family and driving him around the, the ranch and, and handling the transportation, he had said, if I'm ever in Cleveland to, to, you know, look him up and he had gave me his, some of his contact information. I reached out to him. He put me in contact with their CEO of the Cavaliers and, and he helped me get that again, that three days a week, three hours a night, cold calling job to, to get my pro career kicked off. But um, I say that because it's really very similar to the Browns where I knew so I'd worked with someone at NACTA who put me in touch with someone that was at the Browns just to kind of do a get to know them, which ended up leading into getting my resume passed over to the hiring manager of the person that was hiring at the Browns. Um, which got my foot in the door. It didn't get me the job, but at least got me the conversation. So both are very similar. And it, it, my network and some of the people that I had met had helped kind of um, facilitate some of that stuff. So again, I think that I look back in, in my time in college, the one thing that I would recommend to anyone, and you hear more about networking probably than anything is when you're, when you're young, is making sure that like you are actually setting yourself up to, as you find out, Hey, I want to get in pro sports. Who are you talking to? Who are you reaching out to having conversations so that when your time is to, is to apply and, and, you know, start looking for jobs, you have a good network that whether it's them directly looking to potentially hire you, or at least give you a good word to the, to the team or the club that's hiring. Um, that's, that's important. So that's, uh, that's really how everything kind of started for me. Yeah. Great advice. And I guess you're also nowadays more involved maybe in the hiring process. So for somebody that looks not actually to break in sales, but somebody in the sales department, what are you looking at as a hiring, not a hiring manager, but in their hiring process? Yeah. You know, I think that for me and in, in the, the sales reps that I am looking to hire, obviously 95% of the people that we're looking to, to sell are companies. So you know, first and foremost is what is what does their B2B sales experience look like? Have they had success doing it? Where have they done it? You know, have they had different industries that they've that they've worked in? What is their process and, and their sales training? I think a lot of it here that we pride ourselves on is not just getting sales reps in the building and then letting them go sell is but more importantly is that we have a, 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 a training regime that we bring in train on on our process and we kind of have a a system in place that that is a proven process so how well do they adapt to training how well how coachable are they and and do they have a positive outlook you know as they were probably senior sellers at their other jobs are they open to learning and continuing to grow their skill set even as maybe a senior seller so i think that that's the most important for me is yes, numbers and, and generating revenue is obviously the job, but it's also those intangibles um, can help you kind of get to the next level. So I think that's, that's a very big piece that I look at when I'm going to try to find a seller um, or, you know, someone that, that is going to be joining a sales staff. I think that that's an important piece to look at. 
Okay, great. And what do you think is maybe a bit more different about premium sales compared to regular sales? Do you think, I know it's still sell in general, but what is maybe the tweak in the approach that you think the people need? You know, I think in this, there's not necessarily, the, the difference is that you're telling people that they may be going from, you know, calling a consumer to now you're calling a CEO or a president, and that can be a scary thing. Um, but at the end of the day, it, it is still a very similar process. It's just tailoring um, your process to now who you're, the questionings, that, the questions that you're asking, the approach that you're taking is not necessarily changing as a whole. You still want to find out, you know, about the company, just like you would want to find out, hey, what brings you out to sporting events? Is it, you know, if you're bringing out your family, you know, why are you, why are you choosing the, the games that you've chosen in the past? You still want to find out as much as possible. You're just now doing it with a company. So it's, it's not a huge change. It's just more of getting people the, com the comfortability of calling on CEOs and presidents of large companies, as opposed to maybe a, um, you know, a, a single game buyer who's bought Bulls tickets to a game in the past. That's really the big difference. Um, and, and having a little bit of the business acumen and maybe some, some industry knowledge of the different companies that you may be calling on. And how do you think you transfer or get that confidence to people for the ones that maybe not have it already in themselves? Do you think if they don't have that basic level of confidence, it's more a mistake on your side and you you didn't choose properly in the hiring process? Or you think it's something that you can teach or just take repetition and after yeah. a few weeks, it's you got it? Yeah, I, I think I think it's definitely repetition. I think with sales too. I mean, we fail more than we succeed when it comes to sales. We get told no, hundred times a day, and then we get that one yes. That's a that's a successful day. So I think it's it's important to remember too that in this role you will fail a lot more than you succeed. But when you succeed, it is a very rewarding victory. So the more you fail, the more you're going to learn. And that's going to just get you closer to the goal line of, of understanding one, the process two building that confidence that you talked about and asked about. So I think it's people that are not scared to fail because it's going to happen, but it's what you do with those failures. That's going to allow you to, to lead to more victories down the road. That's That's important to kind of have a mentality of that approach. Okay, great. And You worked a lot in the NFL, and I wanted to speak a bit more about this as the NFL is such a big league. You know, you have so many seats, they do so much revenue. So I was wondering, how did you adapt there with the big piece that the NFL is, is coming in before with the, the Cavaliers that you were selling in the arena? Now you're in the stadium. Yeah, a different type of consumer a bit, different type of sports fan, not the same people initially coming into a basketball game than to a football game. So how did you adapt in the process of working with both the Browns and the Saints? Yeah, with Cleveland and, and the NFL, well, NFL specifically. So whether you're talking the Browns or the Saints, I think that, you know, to your point, it's it's the shield. Everyone thinks that, the you know, the NFL is, is a monster. It It's from a revenue standpoint, those numbers don't lie. And, and that, that speaks for itself. I would say that working in it, the, the big difference, and it's probably something you can laugh about is there's only 10 home games in the NFL. And there are, like I mentioned earlier, there are 42, 44 home games for the bulls, 42, 44 home games for the Blackhawks. The time commitment and the amount of events um, is significant there, but people are, 
the the fan base of the NFL is, you know, passionate. It's king. A lot, a lot. It's king. It's passionate. It is a. It is America's. You know, sport. I, if you want to call it that, I think that when my time in Cleveland too, like people, if you look when I was there, the Browns were not good on the field. However, I will say this till till the day I die: is their their passion for the passion for the Browns in that city and that state is incredibly cool. It is it is awesome. It is an all time high, no matter if they're winning every game, losing every game. It is they live and breathe Cleveland Browns football, and I think that's just the NFL. That not every team is not every city is like Cleveland. I I, I get that, but the NFL as a whole has a s- incredibly strong fan base. Not to say that the other leagues don't. I think that it's been a, it, it's it's a different. You mentioned it a little bit. It's not that it's necessarily a different consumer, but it is a different situation in terms of what you're buying due to the amount of games, due to the experience, due to the time commitment. Um, they, they just differ. They they differ in the experience, the benefits, what you what your what sport you're watching. Um, the NFL kind of has their has their niche, and and that's what they've been able to you know really carry with them as as the biz that you know businesses and leagues continue to grow and keep up. Okay, and what do you do with the not necessarily you work less, but what do you do maybe with the the extra time that you would get from. Uh, the NBA season because you got more games to sell, but in the NFL, I don't expect that you work less. But what do you do with those, uh, this free time that you maybe not have? What do you, they make you do or concentrate on when those games are sell? Because I know that the games in the NFL also sells incredibly fast because the demand is super high. Yeah, people, you know, people always say, "Hey, what do you?" you're about to have your off season. Like I'm sure that's a quiet time for, for sales. And I always, I always look at when it comes to sales, no matter what league you're working in, when you're in season, a lot of it is, is crowd control. You know, you've, you've already sold a, a large amount of your base before the season started. And now it's just making sure from a service standpoint that they are getting, they're happy that, that everything is, is running smoothly. From a sales standpoint, our our season is really the team's off season. The second that you know, like I told you already, we we're already on sale for 23-24. So when the Bulls and Blackhawks are done playing, I mean we're we're full sales mode for 23-24. So we don't have an off season per se when it comes to sales, because really when the team stops, it's time for us to have meetings, get in front of people, start closing business for the 23-24 season, so that when the teams are back on the ice on the court. You know, hopefully we've done our job and, and have butts in seats and have generated um, hit goals, generated revenue, because at the end of the day, that's that's the most important thing. That's what we're trying for. So teams off season is really our our in season for for a sales cycle. And how do you think you deal with that with and maybe in comparison to somebody that gets more an off season? I guess you got to be more accountable throughout towards yourself and just keep um, being able to keep the this constant work pace throughout the year how do you think you do it is there anything maybe external to the your current job that you're doing that you think keeps yourself accountable keeps yourself uh, healthy and because you, you don't want to like just uh, burn out because you're just working all the time yeah I mean with 
100 over probably 120, 130 events that come through the United Center a year, I think it would be asking a lot of our staff to work every event. So I don't want to sit here and pretend like we work every event that comes through the United Center doors. So I think to to your point, work-life balance is is important. Um, I would I would probably say you look at a, you know, our staff, we're probably working three to four events per month. Um, so we're, we're definitely not trying to burn everyone out because at the end of the day, we know we have lives outside of, of the arena and work. So um, I think that that's a big piece, but I also think a lot of it, a lot of it, you, you feel a lot more refreshed and energized coming to work when you work with people that one, you want to work with two that you like and get along with well, and three have the same goals and mentality of, of where they want to get to at the end of the day. So that helps, especially in, in the sports world where you are just naturally working a lot of, whether it's late nights, you know, games on weekends, um, it, it is not your typical nine to five. So those, those extra things are important to make sure you stay, you know, stay refreshed and, and energized, you know, throughout the, throughout the year and the season. Okay, great. And as you've worked in baseball and hockey, football, basketball, and even colleges after that, you've pretty much done everything. Can you name what you think maybe are the main advantages and disadvantages or the upsides and downsides of each sports particularly? That's that's a that's a tricky one. I, I would say for the NFL, I think that the that the advantages are just the popularity. The popularity of the NFL, you know, like we mentioned already, and you, and you mentioned the it's 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 a monster. It's the shield. It's 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 sometimes it can sell itself, but it's also it has its own challenges as well. I think that when I look at the NBA, it is a very progressive league. Like they have done an exceptional job of capturing different demographics from from you know all over the. They they've become more of a global brand as opposed to just the United States around the teams that are in the United States. So they're always looking for new ways to engage in, in whether it's their current fan base, whether it's international creating, you know, different platforms and programs to capture new audiences. So I think the NBA has done a, an awesome job of that just in my short time being in it. Um, NHL, I, I would, I would be probably stepping over the line saying that I know, you know, too much about the NHL, but I think that the fan base there, like they have a very passionate fan base. The NHL does. They have a little bit of a, of an older fan base because I think the the NHL, um, you know, a lot of their fan bases has like comes from growing up watching the sport, and now those people are, you know, in their fifties, in their sixties. So you see maybe a little bit of a, a um, older crowd, but it's still a very rowdy crowd. You go to a Blackhawks game, and it is one of the more it is a very fun experience because it's they're so passionate. Again, no matter what's happening on the ice as far as wins or losses, so it's cool to see that. Um, I don't want to say that I can speak a, a ton on the NHL just because I've only been in it for about seven or eight months now, but it's been fun to, to kind of start to see what the NHL is as its own entity compared to the other leagues that I've worked in. Um, I haven't worked in MLB yet, but, but I do feel – that that is a little bit different to kind of an older crowd, like a generational thing where, Hey, my dad watched it. So I became a fan of baseball and, and it's, it's a generational sport. You pass it on to your son, your daughter, whatever it may be. Um, 
So that's that at some point, you know, if I happen to work into that, I, I I'm interested to see kind of the differences in the MLB compared to the, to the other three major, uh, the major four. Okay, great. And what about college athletics? College, college is, it is a, it is a different animal because again, you rely on a lot of your fundraising, your donors, you look at you look at some of these college programs, and they have facilities that are that are nicer than the professional sports teams, <laughs> and, and that's because of the dollars that they're raising from donors and and people. You know, a lot college is different because you're you're typically a fan of college because you're an alumni or your kid goes there. Whereas professional sports, um, for the most part, most people didn't play for those teams. It's it's because you know it's it's you maybe you live in the state of a team or you're mom or dad was a fan of a team. And so you became a fan of that team growing up. It wasn't that you necessarily graduated from that. So college is a little bit of a more personal connection most of the time. Um, again, whether that's you went to school there, you have family that goes to school there, went to school there. Um, and it relies a lot on that alumni to kind of set them up for success when it comes to facilities, um, you know, you use, like I said, you Alabama's facility, you see pictures of it, it and it, it is substantially better than any other professional sports teams facility. So it's just a different animal and you're dealing with anywhere between, you know, up sometimes upwards of 20 to 25 sports within an athletic department. So it, it's its own monster. Yeah. And I was wondering, I was asking myself the question, what do you think makes the particular schools in, in, in CAA, what do you think makes them so popular? Is it because of they have so much fun and they can do so much stuff? Like, I think there's some school, like, I don't know, Michigan or whatever, Tennessee, whatever, Alabama, that there's like an aura and like everybody goes like, like crazy on them. And usually it's going to be also teams that do well on the field. But what do you think is maybe this... Um, the Finch maker because you have so many schools, but you only have a handful that will really like step out from the rest. Yeah, I I think it goes I think it goes back to a little bit of, you know, like the for example the the Michigan Ohio State rivalry in the Midwest here is is massive, and you look at that and and the rivalry is mostly because people that live in Michigan gravitate towards the University of Michigan because that's the state they're in. And same with Ohio State. Um, it's something that you can connect with personally, whether you went to school there again or whether you, you grew up in the state. And, and it's it's the, it's just something that generationally continues to be this this big rivalry. So you just get hooked. I think that that's what college athletics is, is, is awesome because you can have more of a personal tie, a personal story, um, that that has been maybe different than the NFL or professional sports as a whole. So I think college athletics allows you to feel like as a fan, you are closer to the program. You, you feel like you're part of it uh, because college athletics, again, you're, you almost are, you're the one that's paying when you buy a ticket, that's going directly back to the facilities to, for scholarships to, to improve the facilities where um, you know, the, the, the major four, it, it's a business. It is, it is truly a business, um, a, a for-profit business to, to, you know, grow revenue and, and grow the bottom line. So I think people feel like college athletics is less of a business and more of a 
personal tie than maybe the the professional sports is. Okay, interesting. And do you know if college athletics have any premium cell or something like that equivalent in those buildings? Yeah, some of, some of the bigger some of the bigger schools that even the ones that you mentioned, the Michigans, the Alabamas, um, they they have premium sales teams where they're selling their suites, selling different premium areas. So yeah, a lot of the bigger schools do have premium seating departments. Okay, nice. And regarding premium sell, what do you think would be an advice that you have for a young individual that is interested by premium sales or just sales in general? And he's like, yeah, I, I want to call people. I want to make the, the business grow, having revenue for the company. I'm a competitor. It's a thrilling environment for me. What would you say to him or her? Yeah. I think I would look back where when I first started and when you get on the phones for the first time, it is very uncomfortable. And again, we fail a lot more than we succeed when it comes to sales, just as far as the volume that we make and the sales over the calls. So I think it's one, you know, get in, find a program, find a team that is willing to work with you, have it has a good process, trains you and wants the best for you. I look at my time with the Browns. Um, I did not come in there as the best seller. You know, I was, I, it took me a little while to make my first sale, but as I started to grow and get little victories, I started to get, you know, more competitive, more motivated to find the next one. Um, and a lot of it, you know, was from a leadership standpoint, I had, I had people specifically my inside sales manager who challenged us, but made it fun. And I think if you can find a program like that to where, is they're not, it's not always going to harp on your failures, but it's going to allow you to build of, you know, what did you do? Well, what did you didn't do? Well, how can we fix the areas to, to improve? That's going to lead you to, to, to victory or to success. I think that's, that's what's important. So um, the other thing too, is when, when you get out of school, I don't think there's, I don't think you can make a wrong decision, whether it's you go into sales and a year later you decide you don't like it, or you go into marketing and you realize, Hey, maybe this isn't for me. When you're young, try try to try everything. Get get experience in everything because it's going to allow you to find what are you most passionate about. What maybe you you know you're going to find things out about yourself that maybe you didn't know because you hadn't been in the workforce yet. Um, so don't be afraid to say yes because you might surprise yourself. Because I I definitely surprised myself getting into sales um, and surprised myself even more by sticking into sales and now going into you know 10, 11 years in this career. So. I think I think that is that is important and not putting pressure on yourself as friends, peers start getting jobs, start getting promoted. Don't try to keep up. Do what is making you happy. Find what is what is that you're passionate about. And when you find those things, the money, the the titles, the promotions, that will all fall into place. Um, I think that's important and I, that's something that that I have learned too is you don't need to keep up with people just because you may have came into the, the industry at the same time as them. Yeah, that's true. Everything will come eventually after. And yeah, you guys listening just need to take it one step at a time, slowly know what you want to do because you, you really don't want to end up at three, five, forty, working for 10, 15 years in and being, Oh um, yeah, this, this is not what I wanted. I would, like to try this department so much not to say that it's not possible to switch from a department from another a, a bigger position but obviously it's gonna be tougher and you may if you absolutely want to change you may have to start at the bottom of the ladder again where if you try to just 
find the right ladder to climb at the beginning, then you'll be better off after. What's Nick, one thing that you did in your career that you didn't expect or you're surprised of if you think about it and you're like, oh, I never thought I could have achieved that or done that or just I never thought that this would happen to me, but it did. Uh, go into sales. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> now that That's that good. was, I mean, I, I, I am dead serious. Like I, I graduating college, never thought I would go into sales, never went out of my way to try to find out more about the sales profession. Um, so that that's number one is I never expected myself to go into sales. But I would say that the thing that I kind of surprised myself with as I look back, probably mostly my time with the Browns is that was my time coming up in the industry is when I started when I was in inside sales, you know, I was I would I would catch myself looking, okay, how do I get promoted to an account executive, which is the next step out of inside sales. And I was like, okay, if I get promoted and I was seeing what the, the account executives were doing, I was like, wow, that, that seems like it's a big step. Like I would need to really step it up. I, w- I got promoted to an AE and I was like, as I got into it, I was like, okay, like I, I can keep up with, with these people. Like I, I'm doing what they're doing. It's not as scary as I thought it would. And as I started to get more training and again, I had good leadership and they would the guidance and, and the other AEs that, that I worked with, we had a very good close relationship. Like it allowed me to be like, okay, like I, I can do this. Then I looked at it as like, okay, now I'm in an account executive. I'm having some success. The next step would be to be in premium sales and selling at a high level, selling six figure deals, multi-year deals. That seemed very daunting. That seemed very scary. I was like, I don't know if I can do that. I, I haven't done that yet. Like that, I, I, I don't think I can do that. Well, I got to a spot where it was, I got the opportunity to, to make the move to premium sales with the Browns. And um, again, I relate it to, to the relationships that I had with my leadership there, but also the people that were around me selling that I took a lot from that I was able to add to my repertoire. So every one of those steps, I got scared and I probably had some self-doubt. Like, I don't know if I can do that yet. Like, I don't know if I'm there. I don't know if I can get to the level of maybe the people that are in those positions. And I, I would continue to kind of, I don't want to say surprise myself, but at the time I was like, man, I don't know if I can do that. And when I got into it, would, would, would listen to my leadership, would go through the process. I started to find not only was I good at it, but I really, really enjoyed it. And it was challenging and it was motivating. And I, I was like, I was addicted to that to that feeling of getting a sale, especially when you start to get some of the bigger ones, like it's very rewarding. Um, so that that's what has got me to this point in my sales career is like, I still have that drive to find that that victory and that sale. Um, and, and so that's probably the the few things that maybe I surprised myself each each step along the way. I was like, okay, I, I, I do have the skill set to do this. Um, but again, I think it was a lot with, with the, it has been to this point, the leadership that I've had in every role that I've had to this, to this point in my career. Yeah, I think that's great. But yeah, I think also, yeah, like you mentioned that you need a challenge to go after. If you're sure of achieving whatever you need to achieve, then you won't be too happy at the end because you were like, oh, I was sure of getting it. But if you're like, mm, not too sure, let's try it out. And after you accomplish it and you're like, oh, now you'll be proud of yourself, so it's going to be way better. Okay, let's end with a bit more of an interesting open-end question, I'd say. Yeah. Um, in the industry, how do you think it's going to look like 
in three to five years, as recently with the introduction of uh, ChatGPT and just the advancements of technology. How do you think this is going to change the industry, maybe uh, regarding more your job and the tickets and stuff like that? It's a conversation that, that we have we have had honestly over the over the last couple of weeks. Even I think that the one thing that I that I am a true proponent of and, and a believer in is that people buy from people. People like having relationships, and that I don't think will change. I think that some of this new the Chat GPT stuff that you mentioned is going to be extremely beneficial to direct people into certain aspects of the sales of the business areas. So. For, for instance, if, if someone goes to our website on a Saturday, can a tool like that be helpful to guide them, answer questions, get them maybe into a, a situation where now it's now queued up for one of our sales reps to give them a call, you know, say, hey, I, it looks like you were, you were inquiring about some information. Here's what I know. Here's what it sounds like you're looking for. Be able to establish a relationship maybe from get them to step three instead of step zero of, of building that up so i i am very interested to see where it goes the one thing that i do think is that you'll always have to have when it comes to sales and people spending especially in the premium sales world people spending six figures there's always going to i feel like need to be some sort of human element in that um because i, know, I don't think there's many people out there that will write a $500,000 check to a, a bot or to a computer without talking to a real human. So it, there, there's going to be advances within the business that it's going to be extremely helpful and useful on the data side, um, on the, you know, on the analytical world. I think it's going to be extremely helpful. I just don't know what that'll look like in three to five years on the sales side, because I think you're always going to need that human element to, to get business to the finish line. Yeah. So, Hopefully that, that that doesn't necessarily answer your question, but hopefully that that's just kind of my opinion as as that stuff starts to transform. And obviously, I'm I know I'm going to be surprised. I'm going to be wrong with some of this stuff, but I just think that that's where it is today without without being fully educated on where that's going to be going in in the future. Yeah, no, I think this is perfect. And actually, I think perfect example. I was in my marketing research class today, and we were conducted. We were talking about the different type of surveys that you can do. And he was like, if you have a direct bot calling somebody for selling whatever, asking a survey, people are going to oh, hang out directly. They need this human contact if they don't think there's going to be somebody that actually care if they answer or not. Well, if it's just a robot and no human consciousness stuff, they're just going to hang up. So I think the, the sales job definitely won't go away anytime soon. <laughs> And that's it for the episode, guys. I want to thank each of you for tuning in. I want to thank also Nick for giving us some of his precious time to record the episode and give us advice and insights about the business. And I want to also invite you to leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. It's what the algorithm uses for the referencement of this show, so it can be more popular, so even more people can have value and I can invite even better and better guess for you guys so that's it have a good week and i'll see you in the next episode